Welcome to the Heal Podcast, where we believe God heals people in the way that brings Him the most glory and brings us closest to Him. Whether you've received healing, you're in the fight of your life, or you gave up on God a long time ago, you are welcome here. As you come to the table, listen with an open mind, knowing everyone's journey is unique, but pain is our common language. Hello, and welcome to the Heal Podcast. My name is Tara Bradham Denai. I am your host, and if you're listening to this on the Monday it's released, it is Memorial Day. So I hope you are having a good long weekend for a lot of people in the U.S. And also want to take this time to recognize those who have fallen in the service of the United States Armed Forces. So if you have lost a loved one, I just wanted to say I am so sorry for that loss and sacrifice, and I am so grateful for what they have done. Wanted to say that before we moved on. And this weekend, my husband and I are actually moving from Montana to Washington State. So I don't often share about my personal life or things, but I really appreciate prayer. And I would be very grateful if you would just lift us up in this transitional time and that we would find a great church that we would really be able to flourish where God is planting us in this new place. So thank you in advance for that. I am grateful for you. And today, I am also incredibly grateful for our guest. Vanitha Reisner is an author and a speaker. She writes about suffering and finding God amidst the hardship. All the way from when she basically started life as a quadriplegic, when she was treated incorrectly for polio, to her recovery, to losing a child, to devastation and heartbreak in her marriage, Vanitha has experienced true suffering, and yet she has found a God who is there amidst it all, who is held. The song held by Natalie Grant, which is prolific, is actually written about Vanitha's son. And I was just thinking about when that came out and listening to that and how crazy it is that I never would have dreamed in my wildest imagination that I would be talking to the woman whose family that was written about. And I believe that you are going to be touched and inspired and truly held by God through Vanitha's words today. So I am grateful for the redemption that she has and for her coming on and sharing that with us. So here is Vanitha. So one of the first few things I wanted to tell you is I watched the book launch thing that you did with Johnny and your different speakers. So, so fun. But I noticed in the background a couple of things. So one <laughs> is that you have the same thing I have sitting right in front of me at my desk, which is even if not, he is still good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw that in the background, which perfectly, I think, exemplifies your story. So why is that phrase important to you? Yeah. Well, I think that a lot of times for us, we think God can heal us, so he should heal us. Mm -hmm. And that that becomes, and in my life, in different ways, I've kind of expected that. And then yet, you know, this that's sort of a paraphrase from Daniel where, you know, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego say, you know, our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And so there is this sense of even if he doesn't heal the way we expect to be healed, he is still good. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people 
at least in the West that I've seen, walk away from their faith rather than grapple with that phrase. Yeah, yeah. And I think in our society right now, it's so polarizing. There's the people that don't believe in miracles, and so they don't believe that God can heal at all in any way. And then there are people that believe if you just have the faith, you will be healed. It's almost like God is obligated to heal you. Mm -hmm. And so then there's the sense of shaming if you're not healed that somehow something is wrong with your faith. And so we sort of have to live in between those two of God does do miracles, but he doesn't do them all the time or in ways that we can see or perceive. And when he doesn't, that still means that he loves us. It means he has something better for us. Yeah. Was that kind of the impetus for writing your most recent book? I know you have multiple, but what prompted, I'm going to write a full memoir of my story. Yeah. Well, it was funny because my first book was published by Desiring God, and I'm really good friends with some of the people there. And this one man who's on staff there, we... Um, so my husband and I were out to dinner with him and he just said, you know, I've been praying for you and I feel like I would love to see you write your memoir. And I was thinking, wow, that's, that's kind of a bold statement for someone to Mm -hmm. make. And he said, I just feel like it would be good to have a memoir that is about the sovereignty of God and suffering. And he said, there's a lot of theology about it, yeah, but to actually have a story because people learn through stories. So I really took that seriously and prayed and prayed and then just decided, okay, I'm going to. I'm going to try it and, you know, just ask the Lord to just open the right doors if that was going to happen. And he did, which was amazing. And so, yeah, that's really kind of how it started. And it was, it was something I had thought about before, but it never really thought I'm going to do this until somebody else told me like, this is a good idea. Do it. So yeah, decided to do it. And we'll get into more of the complexities, but you had a lot to cover and deal with in in this book, as far as the marriage and loss and just respecting people in addition to your own story. So that was not just like, I'm going to write my pretty little story. I mean, that was quite a big deal to say yes to that. Yeah, it was. It took a lot of prayer too, because, you know, in my story, I am divorced and there's issues around that and just holding other people's stories is something pretty precious. You know, you don't want to, we're all complicated people and we all sin and fall and have victory and we're all kind and we're cruel to different people at different times in our lives and, and really respecting and not wanting anyone to, to be portrayed as one-sided, you know, Mm because none of us are. And that was something I took pretty seriously with my ex-husband and not wanting to portray him as just this cartoon character. Like, He's just a a bad guy Mm -hmm. or a hard guy because he's a great guy in a lot of ways. And just trying to do that without putting a happy face sticker on it. Because Mm -hmm. I think we we tend to do that sometimes. Like, I don't want to tell you anything. Right. And so I'm going to gloss over all the hard Mm -hmm. and make it seem easy. And I think we as Christians do that a lot. And I think there's value to that in some ways because it is other people's stories. But I think getting into specifics and in the hard helps people relate to it. Because when people say, mm-hmm. hey, I was pretty bad with my kids. I mean, I share a lot of stuff. I mm-hmm. uh, really crazy things, throwing water on my daughter. And I found so many people say that was so helpful, like the very specifics of, a, mm-hmm. of an argument. It was. Because when people just say, oh, yeah, we argued. Well, what does that mean? You know, right. that could mean a million things. Or my husband 
was said something hurtful. Well, there's a range of that. And so I feel like I'm most helpful, helped by specifics when people are willing to say, yeah, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. It really teaches me something a lot deeper than when people are very vague. Yeah. I feel like I fill in the blanks with my own stuff, which is often different. Right. Than what actually happened. Yes. Yeah. I- I'm thinking about this. I think it's okay to say, I don't know if you've ever gotten this compliment, but I feel like your book does an incredible job of leaning into the gray. And I'm a very black and white person who God Mm. is still trying to mold into. It's not always black and white and there is gray. Mm. And I'm sitting here thinking, is God a black and white God or is he more a gray God? Because he is a God of mystery that we don't want to grapple with. But Mm -hmm. some things are very black and white. Yes. What do you think? I think sin is black and white, but I think we live in the gray because we live in between the now and the not yet. And we, we don't see everything. You know, there is this... Now we see in a mirror dimly, and then we'll see face to face. So our dim mirrors are gray. Mm-hmm. And I think people people are not black and white. And it's because we're all sinners, but we who love Christ are saved by grace. And so mm-hmm. we're all super complicated. And I think we like to paint people as that's a good person, that's a bad person. Yeah. That's a safe person, that's an unsafe person. But I know in my own life, like if you're a telemarketer, you probably think I'm like a horrible person (laughs) because I will hang up on you. I I just, I'm so rude to certain people, scary insurance people that really irritate me when they wouldn't pay the bill, you know, and they're like, no, no, we don't cover this. And yet I can be kind Hmm. at the same time. And so just, I mean, even in the same relationship, my kids probably think at times I'm an amazing mother and at times they would much rather have any mother besides me. And so I think we're just so fickle as people. And so I think just realizing there's very few people that fall into the all black or all white category. I don't Mm -hmm. think anybody. And so I think that's, that was the complicated part of the book. Yeah. But the actual fun part too, to say, yeah, we're all like this. Yeah. You know, I, I hope I portrayed myself that way. Mm-hmm. Like I have great moments and I have really dark, pretty bad moments. Yeah. And I think this world is turning that way. Yeah. I mean, this is a perfect timely book. And I so agree with your friend who told you to write it because we do relate through story. And whereas you might not have had a good response to a book coming out saying, well, this is what I believe about healing and marriage and God and, you know, that directness, I guess people are so disarmed when they're just reading your story because they don't expect it's about them. They're just reading your story. Mm-hmm. And then it's like sneak attack in what you're saying. Oh, wow. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, that's what you want is people to enter into it Mm -hmm. and bring their own stuff. Like this is, it's everybody's story. And that's what you pray that it's going to feel like to people, not just like, oh, that's some other person that I can't relate to. Mm -hmm. You hope through sharing that people can relate to it in different ways. Right. Well, I'll say I don't have kids yet and I have been married for two years. There are a lot of things in your book that I really can't quote relate to. I haven't been there yet, except the physical aspect that I could really see. But I was so I felt like I was there because you did such a good job describing everything. So from someone who would have a reason to say, Oh, I don't relate to this. I did you just suck us in like a sponge. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm so glad. Yeah. Uh, One other thing to going back to what I saw on your bookshelf in that video, you had the book unbroken on your bookshelf. Oh, I did. Oh, wow. Yeah, I do have the book unbroken. That's funny. Yeah. Sometimes I'm detail oriented, not all the time, but I just love books. And so I'm sitting there like, well, 
I really love her book. What does she have on her bookshelf? That's one of my top three books of all time. Oh, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that. I'll just, an aside, um, I met my husband on eHarmony and they ask you, uh, what are three books you've read? And that was one book we had both read Wow, was Unbroken. So like, it always has this sort of special place because we both had it and um, both had read it. And yeah, so I love the book. So what, what do you, you were going to say something about the book? No, not really. Just, I'm so glad that it's, mm. it is one of my favorites. I recently read Unbreakable, which is a different book, mm. also good, but about the most dangerous steeplechase and the woman who defied the Nazis doing that. And so they're just, I love memoirs, clearly, and biographies, and Laura Hillenbrand is amazing. If yeah, anyone could ever get to that level, I'm just like, I don't know. And she also has some chronic pain physical stuff as well oh. that she writes through. I don't know specifics, but yeah. So in that, I feel like obviously you weren't a soldier left out in a boat being circled by sharks, but I feel like a lot of your story does have parallels to that. Hmm. And and we love stories like that it's I think it's a New York Times bestseller because of overcoming and we all have something that we need to overcome and I feel like in the midst of that everything that you've had thrown at you I don't know that you are unbreakable but I believe you stood on a god who was unbreakable Mm. amen yeah yeah he's there no matter what people go through and I I love that story because you know the hero Louis Zamperino I mean he's a believer and god really Mm -hmm. walked through life with him. Yeah. I can't wait to meet some of these people in heaven. I just like have all these lines I'm going to be in like, okay, I'm going to go for that person. And then this person. No, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's jump into that to your story of what that looks like. And for the most part, your book is chronological, but there's like a little bit of thematic things going on. So for this, I guess, start at the beginning. Let's start in your childhood, because I know that is more in the middle of your book. But how how did some of this stuff start? What would people relate to and physical pain and limitation in your story? Yeah. Well, my story begins in India. Actually, I was born in India. And when I was three months old, I got polio. Now, polio had been pretty much eradicated by then. The vaccine had been developed. And um, none of the doctors even knew what it was. And so I had high fever, 105 degrees at three months old. So my mom took me to a friend who was a doctor and the doctor was sure that I had typhoid, gave me cortisone, which lowers your body's immune system. So within a day, I was, or a few days, I was completely paralyzed. But they didn't even notice that. And when they did, the doctor basically said, yeah, we realize now she had polio, but there's nothing we can do. She's a quadriplegic. And they told my parents I probably would never even sit up. And they told them that they should leave India because there's very poor... Um, couple of reasons. One, at the time, the medical system in India wasn't very good. And so they Mm. felt like I would not get good care. And there's also quite a stigma in India with disability. They see it as a curse. And so they said, you know, there's just no services for people who are disabled. So my parents left India immediately. We moved to England. My dad had been a professor in a university in India, and he took a job, a laborer's job, installing telephones. Wow. So he basically gave up his whole career. And I had my first surgery in England when I was two. And we moved to Canada after that. And by the time I was 13, I'd actually had 21 operations. And I lived in and out of the hospital. We lived in um, Montreal first. 
We were there for five years. And I've been there. Really? Just so, That's the only place in Canada. I, no, that's not true. I went to Banff later, but. No, okay. Well, yeah. So I lived in Montreal. It's very French. Yeah, yes. And I actually learned French um, because I lived in this hospital, which was um, half French. So I had to speak some French. So I learned that. And um, once I was there for a year in a body cast flat on my back for nine months, and other times I was there for a few months at a time. So that really became my home. Uh, I was there probably more in my young years than I was anywhere else, more than I was at home. And you said that people like parents couldn't visit because of the, the kids who weren't receiving visitors. And that was yes how they yeah. balanced it, tried to. Yes. So I was on a ward with about a dozen other girls and we could only see our parents on weekends because they didn't want some kids to have family there all the time and other kids to feel really lonely. So basically I saw my parents on Saturdays and then for a few hours on Sunday and that was it. And so I grew up a lot on my own, just kind of figuring out life by myself. And a lot of my impressions of life were from TV because we'd have the TV on and just watching life, feeling like I'm not going to be part of this. This is somebody else's life. And I'm sort of a bystander. And I feel like that feeling was something that I carried through for a lot of years. Like mm-hmm. there's normal people, there's people who have good lives and easy lives. And then there's people that are kind of like kids looking into a candy store, like we're looking in, mm-hmm. but we would never experience that life. And so that was kind of a weird dynamic that I feel like I experienced through most of my growing up years. But when I wasn't in the hospital, I was bullied a lot when I was home and kids would make fun of me. I had, so I was a quadriplegic, but then I had all the surgery exercise twice a day for years and was able to walk. And so when I was seven, after I would had been in the body cast for a year, I was able to walk. And I thought that was going to make life wonderful and easy, but it ended up that kids would make fun of me because of my limp. And um, when I was seven, a group of boys threw stones at me and called me a cripple and knocked me down. And so there was just a lot of heartache from feeling like I am completely different from everyone else. Yeah. So childhood just sort of had this mixed bag. I was very close to my family and I still am. And I'm really grateful for that. But I didn't ever feel like I fit in in the world. So it was like there was my home, the four walls of my house. And besides that, there was nowhere where I really belonged. Yeah. Well, and then you have your identity too, with already having been in three very different countries by the time you were really young, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then your parents, I imagine that's pretty mixed bag of like, I mean, they gave up everything for you, love you, but then you also couldn't see them. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was just a very different kind of growing up. And my parents, you know, had immigrated as adults. And so that was, my mom would wear Indian clothes, which was totally great, but I already felt different, you know, when there was nobody who, I didn't know anybody growing up even whose parents were from India. So people would comment on my mom's clothes and do you eat weird food? And I mean, just all kinds of things. So I just felt like I didn't know where I belonged because I felt like a Westerner, but then I wasn't. And so it was just a very weird kind of trying to figure out where your place is. Yeah. Okay. One random question. Have you read the Gift of Pain by Dr. Paul Brand. I have read some of it, but you know, my my uncle was a you know, Paul Brand was in India. Yeah, so that's why I brought it up. And and my uncle was really good. He was the second in charge of that hospital where Paul wow. Brand was. So they were like super close friends. Wow. Okay, I'm so glad I yeah. asked that question. 
that book was crazy to me. Just his work really? with lepers. I mean, the whole idea of the gift mm-hmm. of pain, right? For yeah, our yeah. stories. And yeah, we would never describe. I think they said, Philip, I actually got to interview Philip Yancey a few months ago, who co-authored that with and did some books with Dr. Paul Brandon. I think their original title was The Gift No One Wants, mm. but then that turned into the book No One Wants and no one bought the book. <laughs> And so the gift of pain is what they landed on because we don't think of that as a gift at all. Yeah. yeah. So looking back at your childhood, would you think any of that was a gift? Can you see that now or not really? Or God redeemed it? Yeah. I mean, I think God used it to shape me and to, to help me sort of lean on him. And I think be able to understand what other people go through when they talk about bullying and all of those things. And I know that the Lord was with me during that time, even though I didn't know the Lord. And I was actually pretty angry at God. If he existed at all was sort of my thing is if, if there is a God, I don't want to know him, Hmm. but I probably, I think there probably isn't a God. And that was just because life had been so cruel and so hard. And it seemed like it was so easy for everybody else. And so I had this sort of indifference to God on some level, anger on another level, but didn't tell anybody about it, which is kind of weird. Like I grew up in church with my parents and really, I don't think they had any idea how angry I was at God and the world because I was a pleaser. And so I felt like I needed to say the right stuff. So I do see it as part of what God used to shape me. And I think he uses everything in our lives to shape us, but I think pain shapes us probably the most. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge gift in that. So I would say I see that. I think the things I see more clearly are the things that I've seen as an adult because I've been able to process them as they happen and how they're changing me. Yeah. So one on that before we'll go, because you have uh, plenty of Job-like things in your adulthood (laughs) as well. Uh, But I know multiple people who are adults who were bullied, who, I mean, when you're bullied in those formative years, I mean, it can change your whole capacity for, yeah, just mental love, all that, your self-esteem identity. And they're still struggling with that. And like, they're no longer bullied, right? But that so formed them. What would you say to someone living in that place right now that the world was just so cruel to them and they're in, in adulthood? Yeah, I would say God can use that for good in your life. Like, you know, as you go back and reflect on what has happened, you know, realizing that God was there with you and God cares and God weeps over that. And I think I've, I've definitely talked to other adults who've been bullied. And one thing I'd heard is there's three things in common with people who've been bullied. One is that they are insecure, which I, I, I see that in myself. They're high achievers and they're pleasers. And I think those three are basically because people feel like I'm not enough. So I have to prove it. And I think really embracing the gospel that you are enough, Hmm. you know, that God fearfully and wonderfully made you and that you're loved and you're enough and that what happens when you're bullied is so much more about the people. It's it's pretty much only about the people who bullied you and not about you. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I usually, you know, when I talk to people who have been bullied, just reassuring them, even though it's they're deep wounds. And I think there's lies we believe uh, mm-hmm. around those wounds. And so it's really naming them yeah. and letting Christ show us what truth is. And I think then you get this freedom that you can look back and say, okay, 
that isn't me. That's more about them than about me. And, mm-hmm. But it, I think it's a process. I don't think it's yeah. one of those overnight, oh yeah, I was bullied now. I should feel better. But really right. identifying the lies, I feel like that's been a huge part for me. And, and it's been a lifelong process. I mean, through my own story, realizing as things come up, it sort of would trigger me back to, yeah, you're not enough. And just understanding what those wounds are and what the lives I've believed because of those, I think yeah. is a big part of the healing. Yeah. I'm going to give you a real deep one. Okay. Okay. So when you say you are enough, I believe that is true. That is the gospel. I think you are worth what someone is willing to pay for you. And Jesus was willing to pay everything for you, which means you're worth everything, regardless of what you've done. I mean, from conception, I mean, you are worth it, but I feel like so many people cannot bring that from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge. So how do you believe and stand on that, that you are enough? Mm. I think it's really asking God to, to drill that into you. You know, I mean, there's lots of verses. I mean, there's so much scripture about how God is for us and, you know, he, who did not spare his own son, how much more will he give us all things? You know, that's a parasite phrase of Romans Mm -hmm. eight. So I think it really is just reminding yourself and reminding yourself and reminding yourself of the truth and asking God to make it real to you. Because I think, I mean, there is that, distance from our head to our heart. And there's so many things we understand and we believe and we would, you know, say are pivotal, but often it's really, it takes a while to really believe them. And I mean, it's funny because I think suffering is a gift because it moves the gospel from our head to our heart. And I feel like anybody who's found God Mm. sufficient in the midst of their suffering, not anyone who suffered, because some people walk away in suffering. But if you find Jesus is sufficient in your suffering and mm-hmm. you meet him there, I honestly don't know anyone who's walked away. Because it's not like I don't believe God is real. It's like hmm. you've met him. You know him. He's not an academic, open the Bible, this is what I yeah. think is true. It's somebody you know. And so like it's not like you don't believe your parents are real. You know them. Most people do. And I think that's what suffering does is it changes faith from our head to our heart in a lot of ways because we encounter God in it. Mm, That is so good. So how did you move from you were pleasing, kind of angry at God if he existed to talking the way that you talk right now? Like when did that change? Well, it changed in high school. So I got involved in FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Yes. And I did it um, not because I was a Christian or an athlete, but because all the cute guys in my high school went to (laughs) FCA. And I wanted to be popular. Whatever it takes. Yes, exactly. So those cute guys drew me in. And I had um, a friend and I would sit and I would sit in the back and we'd talk about boys. And then one day she went away on a retreat and she came back and said, God is real. And I remember just thinking, oh, no, she's going to want to talk about God. And she did. Mm -hmm. She wanted to talk about God all the time. And so finally, one day, I just went home and I just said, God, if you're real, show me. And nothing happened that night. I remember just thinking, okay, God's not real. And then the next morning, I got up and I 
I had a Bible from years before and I pulled it out and I just said, I'm sitting on my bed Saturday morning. And I just said, okay, God, like, why did all this happen if you're real? And I remember flipping the Bible to Leviticus and like, there was nothing there that I could understand. And so I thought, okay, this is what I've always thought the Bible was. And I had never actually opened the Bible on my own before anyway. And then I just said, why, 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 why did this happen? And I flipped open to John nine where Jesus mm -hmm. is talking to his disciples and they pass a man who was wow. blind from birth. And the disciples say, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life. And that was the moment for me. Like God was answering my question of why did this happen? But the wild thing is my question was, why did it happen? What did I do wrong? Kind of like the disciples question of, you know, mm -hmm. who sinned? But Jesus's answer was not why, like who, who had done something wrong, but what was the purpose and how could it be used? And that's a, such a different answer to the question of why. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, God, God can use my life. And that was just this radical thought to me that God would use my life to show people his glory. And so didn't even fully understand it, but it seemed like God was talking to me. So I knelt down on the side of my bed and committed my life to a God I had just met, mm -hmm. but I knew had known me. My goodness, that passage, though, of all the passages in scripture to open to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was God. I mean, it was and it was so wild because I felt like God just sort of said, here, I'm here. Like I'm answering you, even though I asked it so arrogantly. It was like I could hear the voice of Jesus talking to me through that. And then from there, you love prayer and love scripture, right? Do you still have your prayer closet? I do. I have, I, we've moved to a different house, but I do have another one because I am so committed to having a prayer closet. I have to admit, after I read your book, I went on Pinterest and started Pinteresting prayer closet. Oh, did <laughs> you? Because I was like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. We don't have a place to have a prayer closet, but that's like my new dream now. If you could have a closet with a window, I think that would be the best. Yeah. 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 You, I was like trying to do the whole crawl space thing. And I was like, where could I fit this in? And it's okay. Not yet, but someday. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've spent time there. That came about, I think, through another one of these trials. So yeah, let's jump into some more of that. Maybe you take us where you want to. Maybe your son. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought after I came to Christ that life was going to be great and sort of had told myself that my life, you know, Christians, they shouldn't suffer. You know, everybody has one big thing. That was my thing was everybody has one big piece of suffering and that's all. And I thought, wow, I've already had my suffering. I am good to go. But it turns out that um, there was more suffering. And so one thing is my, um, which I, we can talk about later, but my, um, my husband had an affair when I was pregnant with our first daughter. So that, that was this huge sort of like, God, how could you do this? How could you let this happen? And yet God met me in these amazing ways. And we put our marriage back together and the Lord taught me about forgiveness. And so then I was pretty sure that there was not more suffering coming. And then I had, you know, I'd had a miscarriage before our first daughter. Then I had two miscarriages. 
after. And then we had a son who I found out when I was 20 weeks pregnant, had a hypoplastic left heart. And that is a condition where you have half your heart and you have to have surgery at birth or you'll die within, um, within a few weeks. And so talked to a friend of mine from high school who was a pediatric cardiologist and ended up doing this three-step procedure when he was born. And the surgery went great. We came home from the hospital. We were in Michigan for the surgery and just everything was perfect. And then one day we went in to, to get a checkup and the regular doctor wasn't there and there was a substitute. And he looked at Paul and said, oh my gosh, he's doing so well. He doesn't need all this medicine. I mean, we were drawing medicine up for him all hours of the night. It was every three or four hours. He was getting all kinds of things. And so we were really happy at first. It just seemed like, oh, this is great. This is great news. But I remember um, that night I called John, um, my friend who's the cardiologist, and John said, you know what? He needs his medicine. You need to call and get him back on those things. That's really important. So I called the office and left a message, and it was Friday, and I didn't think it was like super urgent. It was Friday evening, and then just had a great weekend. And then um, Sunday night, Paul got up to nurse and went limp, uh, screamed and went limp in my husband's arms. And we called 911 and he went with him to in an ambulance to the hospital. And I was home with Katie. And I remember just asking God, like, help me. And I called John and it was not the days of cell phones. So I was calling him at 3 a.m. at his house and he wasn't even there. He was at a friend's house. So his wife gave me the number. I woke up their whole family and just said, I I don't know what to do. You know, they took Paul. What should I do? And it was so weird because John just kept saying, I'm so sorry. And, and those words were so hard because I kept saying, well, we're going to be in the hospital. Tell me what I need to tell the doctors. Like what, what went wrong? What was the thing? And all he kept saying was, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And that that was so hard. So I remember hanging up the phone and I got on my knees and I begged God to save Paul. And I begged and I bargained and I said, I'll do anything. And then our friends came and to sit with Katie and one of them went with me to the hospital. And when we got to the hospital, I found out that Paul had died. And that was a real crisis of faith for me. Well, actually at first, Tara, it was not. I first was like, I, I was crushed but I sensed that God was in it. God never makes a mistake. I had just sort of learned that phrase and felt pretty confident that God was going to carry us. And he did. We spoke at his funeral and I just really felt God's presence through our friends. And, and then three weeks later, I wanted to pull every one of those words back because God felt so distant. And it was so hard to admit that because I had been teaching women's Bible study before all that happened. And it's so hard when you're a position of leadership or something like that to admit, like, I don't know where God is because that felt weak. I was worried that it was going to destroy other people's faith. And I really needed to focus on my own faith because sometimes I think we live life, these dual lives, because we feel like our life has to look the right way for other people. So no matter what's going on inside of us, we feel like we have to present a certain exterior. And that is what I did. But inside, I, I didn't open the Bible. I just didn't know where God was. And it was a long time. And just finally, one day I was in the car and I just felt desperate and depressed. And then I just called out to God and I just said, help me. 
I, I need you and I, I don't know where to find you. And I remember putting in a worship tape and then um, just sort of singing with it, just thinking, okay, I, I need to just praise God. And then all of a sudden, the wildest thing, it felt like God was in my car, like in a way that I have never, ever felt again. So it's not like I'm one of those, like, I mean, which is great if people feel that way, but I don't sense the actual presence of God mm-hmm. like that. And um, I ended up turning off the music and just laughing. Like I was so happy. It was this bizarre, wild, unbelievable, like this was the happiest moment of my life. And my son had just died like months before, but yet it just felt like this was what it felt like to just be with Jesus. Hmm. And there was just this incredible joy. And that joy really changed me. And I've learned about lament really after that because I felt like I could trust God. And I think we don't lament and we don't cry out to him and we don't ask him where he is. We we sort of complain, which is talking about God and lament yeah. is talking to God. And I learned that God was safe enough to talk to, you know? And so that changed me. So I remember going through the Psalms and and lamenting my son's death, but feeling like it drew me closer to God and not farther. Yeah. What I see is a combination of your choice and God's mercy. Mm. And I I think those are in play. Sometimes you just see God come down and totally wreck someone's life or have this miraculous experience. And then sometimes we just feel so abandoned. But what I heard you say is, well, I chose to play worship music. I just Mm. chose that. And then it's like, all you needed was that tiny step and then he just met you in power of like, okay, yeah. if you're going to choose this tiny thing, I'll give you the rest. Yeah. Do you think that's, I don't know if that God works in so many ways, but I think that's very common for him to say, okay, you have to choose, right? You have to choose for him to be your savior first off, right? And then I'll, I'll yeah. take the rest, but just yeah. give me a little bit. Yeah. And for me, it really was, it felt like, I mean, I put that tape in, but it was more just admitting I needed, like just being vulnerable enough to cry out to him and say, help me sort of open my eyes. But yeah, I think often when we pray, we ask for things, we ask God for help, and then we don't open our eyes to see how he's answering. Hmm. And I think that's, that's sort of the biggest thing I've learned through my life is when I call out to God, like trust that he's answering. Whereas I think sometimes we call out out of this sense of, okay, I got to pray, so I will, but there's no looking for God's answer. And he always hears us. You know, I love in Daniel where it says, you know, from the moment your cries went out, like people were dispatched, things are happening. And yet we don't pay attention to that. So how do we open our eyes? I think we ask God to. I mean, it's like look around. But for me, often it's like read the Bible, listen to pay attention to what people are showing you or circumstances. I mean, I feel like the Lord answers our prayers through like work of the Holy Spirit, just, you know, just sensing what you should do or through circumstances through like the radio, just whatever is around you through prayer and a lot through the word. But those are the ways, like if we open our eyes and just pay attention to everything around us, sort of watch, what could God be doing? I think there's so many more answers that God longs to show us that we just don't look for. Hmm. What would you say to someone who has lost a child? I mean, you said you had four miscarriages? Yes. Yep. And lost your son. Yes. 
So what would you say to that person? Maybe they haven't been able to bring themselves to look for for God in Mm -hmm. this. I mean, it's the ultimate separation that was never supposed to exist. What would you say to them? Um, I would say it's really hard to make that first choice because, you know, we're frustrated. We don't want loss. None of us do. But when you reach for God, what he shows you sort of reframes your life. And so your loss feels different. And it's not that Paul's life is any less precious. And I'm so excited. I will see him again. And with all those miscarriages as well, those children that, um, that God created. And so just realizing that God is so much bigger and one day there will be no more crying or pain and there will be no more separation and just realizing we're just passing through this life, you know, and realizing now that God was glorified through Paul's life and used it, you know, Natalie Grant, um, song held was written by my friend, um, about our story about Paul and it starts off with insane. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You know, it starts off with two months is too little. They let him go. And that's how Paul was when he died. And, Yet God has brought so much comfort to people through that song and mm-hmm. realizing this life is over in a blink of an eye. And I think for us, there's a huge difference between somebody living to be a hundred and somebody dying at two weeks old. But, you know, you see in scripture, you know, a thousand days is a thousand years is like a day. Like, so mm-hmm. it's not going to feel materially different is my guess in heaven. Yeah, And so just understanding that we just don't understand those things. And yet mm-hmm. God can be with us even now, I think is, is what I would say to people. I mean, it's hard. I, I wouldn't want to say to people, don't grieve because right. you should grieve. It's a loss. And your life on earth may always feel different because of that, because of the loss. And yet you can still embrace the life God has given you even in the midst of that. Mm-hmm. It's like we have to be willing to surrender our understanding, which if mm-hmm. understanding is all we have as far as that's who we are as a human being is our mind and what we understand, that's a very hard thing to surrender. Yeah. But I think, at least in my story, it sounds like in yours, you have to get to the point where it's, I believe that there's a greater reality. I know you're real because I have a relationship with you and I, you're bigger than my mind, right? Your, your thoughts are not my thoughts. I mean, he yeah. says that. Yeah, exactly. So you do have to understand, um, yeah, we walk by faith and not by sight right now, but one day we'll see. Mm -hmm. Okay. I hate cutting you short because I know there's so much more in this, but I want to move on and get to a different part of your story. And this will just encourage people to buy the book to get the deeper version. So going forward, that wasn't even it in the suffering. Right, right. So I found out, so six years after Paul died, I found out I had post-polio syndrome, which is a disease that happens to 70% of the people who have polio. And what happens is basically your arms and legs and all your progress that you've made from wherever you got polio start to unwind. And so what they say is your energy is like money in a bank when you get polio and everything you do makes a withdrawal, but there's no making a deposit until you have no more money left. And you go back to where you were when you first got polio, which for a lot of people isn't that bad. A lot of people have it in one arm or one leg or something like that, but I was a quadriplegic. So they basically told me when I got that diagnosis, I am moving back 
backwards. And eventually I probably will be a quadriplegic. So that was a huge, huge discovery for me because I had been an artist. I had done so many things um, and love. Yeah. Yeah. I I was addicted to scrapbooking and just, just love graphic art. And so that was love to cook. I used to sell jewelry and I remember saying to them, what happens if I don't stop everything? And they said, in 10 years, somebody will be feeding you. And I was in my mid thirties then and two young kids. And so that was just kind of a shocking thing to me was realizing that I could control how this disease progressed, which was really hard when you have kids and you have to decide, do I do this for them? Do I do that? Or do I, do I not do anything? Mm -hmm. And that continues to be this sort of struggle that I have because, you know, I use a wheelchair often now, my arms are failing in a lot of ways and just, just having to trust God with that and, and know that God will give us what we need every day. And that's all that we have. And and that's what everybody has is every day. Yeah. But realizing I will have the strength I need today to do what I need to do. Mm-hmm. So when you were young, you had this anger towards God. And then you came to know him and have a relationship with him. But I'm guessing that wasn't just like, okay, now I have post polio and I'm just going to stand on that. And Yay, God. I mean, did you ever have the thoughts like going back to that of like, why God? Like, why won't you heal me? You had that horribly mortifying experience on stage that you shared of like that guy saying it was your fault that you weren't miraculously healed and these things. When you have these kids, you've gone through all this. You're like, okay, God, has this not been enough? Why can't you just throw me a bone? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I would say... Because I had seen the faithfulness of God, I probably wasn't angry, but as much as sad that my life was going to change so radically. But I had learned through Paul's death what it meant to lean into God. And that really made it a lot easier than it would have been otherwise. Not that I didn't have the times of crying and wondering, like, more like, why did you put me in this position to have to choose? The choosing was the hardest part. Like if something hard happens, but you don't have any control over it, there is, there's this sense of, well, you've just got to accept it the way it is. But to know that I had some control over how fast I went downhill, depending on what I did, that was fun. So I was like, okay, I could sit in my house and do nothing, which is not the kind of my personality. Then I could maybe have more strength, but what brings me joy and just having to make choices, which... I think it's really hard, but really good at the same time. Like what, what is important? I had to figure that stuff out really quickly. Like what's really important. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was like, okay, my family's important. It's probably more important than my creative outlets ultimately, because I want to be there for them, but I want to serve them that, you know, so it was just, so there was a lot um, that God taught me about just depending on him on a day by day, minute by minute basis. Like, Lord, should I say yes to this? Should I do this? And still having to make those requests when people ask me, can you go speak? Can you travel here? Just having to say, okay, Lord, I can do this just a couple times a year. So is this the time that I should say yes Hmm. or no? That kind of dependency. So I think a lot of people would tell you, some Christians I know, well, you should just pray and like believe that God will miraculously make up for whatever energy you use and you won't go downhill and just believe that. Yeah. And you have to bounce. Like, I totally believe he could. 
He absolutely yeah. could. Yeah. But then that would be a choice too. And I have to say, I, so I still have some, some nerve stuff and some limitations with my shoulder. And I'm like, I mean, I'm living a miracle, but I'm training for triathlons and I'm like, what's worth it? Is it me sticking to this plan that they made for other people or saying, you know what? I, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to train the way a quote normal athlete would ever train. And I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. I, I don't haven't even mastered that. And I've had this shoulder injury for over 10 years. And so I am very impressed with you saying that, but would you say you're a master or it's still? Oh no, I am not a master at anything. Let me tell you. So it's still, uh, um, you know, it comes and goes on me figuring it out or feeling good about it. And, um, just John Piper has this quote that I love, which is occasionally weep deeply over the life you hoped would be Hmm. feel the loss, grieve, um, grieve the loss, feel the pain, then wash your face, trust God, and embrace the life he's given you. And that's mm-hmm. really what I think God, it's sort of this process of lamenting and grieving and then just saying, okay, God, like I'm going to trust you that you have given me what's best for me and just embracing that. Yeah. How are you doing now? You kind of mentioned you still feel like you're losing arm capacity and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a challenge. I mean, it's I go through periods of a lot of pain and a lot of loss and like not being able to do stuff. And then I'll be fine, sort of plateau for a while. So I'm sort of in a period, I would say, with more pain. So a lot of times at night, I'm in a lot of pain. And in the day, my shoulders, basically, I have no shoulder muscle. And so my shoulders are falling out of the sockets, basically. But they won't fall out because the ligaments will hold them, but but all the muscles, there's no muscle there. So there's a lot of pain from that. And so just dealing with that and, you know, just figuring that out. So, yeah, I would say life is on the physically pretty challenging side for me right now. Yeah. What's the most important thing you can do spiritually to walk that out each day? Read the word and just say, okay, God, you know what I need today. You know, I am such a huge read the Bible every day. You know, some days it feels like cardboard and other days it tastes like honey, but mm-hmm. every day you got to read it. I love that. You know, that's just, that has transformed me more than anything else. It's just the Bible. Yeah. You know, and people like want to go to conferences and they want to do all these amazing things. And so do I, you know, if you just heard that speaker, if you just read that book, but there is nothing that has changed me like the word. Mm-hmm. Amen. Okay. I have more questions that I really want to get to, which is then your husband ended up having another affair. Yes. So my husband came home, said he was leaving for someone else. I had two adolescent daughters. So I had Christy after um, Paul died. So I had two daughters ages eight and 11. Yeah. Actually, uh, nine um, when he left and uh, almost 13. And that was kind of devastating. I'd been homeschooling them. My strength was going downhill and he actually left and moved to another state. And that was crushing for me. I didn't actually know how I was even going to make it. I mean, there were times when I screamed out to God, like, why do you hate me? Because that felt like everything else I had done with my husband. And yet now, and we had worked through a lot together and we were friends and it felt like the deepest betrayal. And and it was. And so that just kind of cascaded me into the probably the most depressed time of my whole life. And the kids were really angry. And that's when I learned 
to lean just on God because there was nothing else. I mean, I had no husband to help me. I had kids who were angry. My body was failing. And I just remember thinking if I only had two out of those three, I could be fine. But, you know, if I had a healthy body, but all these other things, or if I had a husband and these, you know, and, or the kids were really understanding and great. And yet God knew that because I had none of those things, I had to depend on him in a way that was radical and incredible in terms of the word became living to me. Like I remember just getting up in the morning and saying, I would say this from Psalm 119 verse 25, my soul clings to the dust, revive me according to your word. And he did. Mm -hmm. He revived me according to his word every day. I mean, I kept a journal and I mean, every day there would be something that God gave me. And it was unbelievable to me. And that is what like wisdom, like I would say, I need to know what to do with this. And somehow it would be in the passage I was reading. It was just that God knew what I needed and he gave it to me. And, um, you know, Isaiah 30 has this, you know, though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teacher will hide himself no more. And you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And that's what happened. Like I had the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, but God was right there. And I heard him. I saw him. I mean, I felt him. It was kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. I love that you are living out, even right now in this podcast, what you're suggesting, which is the word. And you can tell that you have the word stored up inside you, that you've memorized these passages because you've clung to them. And I... I cherish that. I know this is so much deeper in the book and I think you do a a great job. I know it must've been super painful to have to relive this stuff to write that book. So thank you for delving into that. In that though, I think even as you walk through healing, you still had to, like we talked about bullying, you still have effects of that. Well, even Mm -hmm. once you're walking through healing, it's, there's still effects of that. And so For this audience in particular, I was hoping you would speak to insecurities about your body um, because people, I think, really can struggle with that, right? You said you had 21 operations on your legs and different things. And and then of all things, I believe your husband said, like, I'm not physically attracted to you. And that's kind of why this is happening. Yeah. And then like, you're supposed to then let another man into your life when you met someone? I mean, how did you find your identity in God with that? I mean, that's like someone who's differently abled. It's like a worst nightmare, right? To have like, this is what I'm insecure in. And the person I've like committed my life to just called that out in me. Yeah, it was. It was. And, you know, at first I was just shocked and angry and sort of buried it, you know? And it was funny because I had to pull it back out for the book and just really come to terms with what, what did I do with that? And I think it really is understanding that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And, and I think there is, especially for women, this sense of you have to have these perfect bodies and, and, you know, to have my, um, your husband say, you know, I'm not attracted to you. And, and in the book, I, I have this, he had this analogy of, you know, this woman that he had an affair with was, she's ice cream, your broccoli. And then later we had this analogy that I brought up or, um, but that 
I was Leah and all these other women, this woman that he was with was Rachel and sort of Leah in the Bible is the one who was married to Jacob first, but it said she had weak eyes and he was not attracted to her, but she was godly, I guess. And, you know, she was in the line of Christ, but Rachel was beautiful. And so I remember just feeling like, I don't, I don't want to be Leah. I don't want to be sort of the second choice, the unattractive one. And yet it was kind of wild because I really was sort of still struggling with that. And then my husband now, Joel, I remember when I met him and I was talking to him about how I didn't, I was kind of self-conscious about walking down the aisle. And I said, you know, I really, I'm very self-conscious about the way I walk, probably partly because of what my ex-husband had said, but just you know, from being bullied and having a limp and just like, uh, I don't know if I'm wanting, I, I mean, I, I would do it, but I just said, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm nervous about that or I'm not excited about it. And he just looked at me and said, I love the way you walk. And I've loved it from the beginning. And that was probably like this huge thing for me from God, even more than from Joel. Like, I love the way you walk. Like God has made me a certain way and you know, what other people see says so much about who they are and what they value, you know? And I think sometimes with the disability, you feel like there's this standard of beauty that you want to live up to, but there really is, it depends on who you look at, on who, what they think is beautiful. And it was interesting because Joel said he was in an airport not that long ago. And there's a woman who had a limp the way I limp. And I thought he'd say, so I don't know what I thought he'd say, but he said, you know, I just wanted to go meet her because it made me miss you so much because I really love the way you walk. And this was not that long ago. It was right before COVID. And I think there's something that when you do have a disability, your body isn't perfect and you realize what really matters and the people that you know, that you would date or marry are a lot more, they have a lot more depth because the people who are just looking at what's skin deep and superficial, I mean, and and some people do that, but there's something so much deeper about someone who sees beauty where the world says, okay, that's not the airbrushed beauty that you see on the cover of Vogue magazine, but it's a very different kind of beauty. So I think God showed me so much just through Joel Mm -hmm. of how beauty is really you know, they say beauty's in the eye of the beholder, and it really is yeah. in a lot of ways. And God beholds us as beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing is, I feel like so often God uses other people to show us his love. But I, mm-hmm. I it was one of the quotes that I wrote down from your book. And you said, long before Joel loved the way I walked, Jesus loved the way I walked. Mm-hmm. And it's like going back and processing that as you write the book. I mean, he's always first. And yet sometimes we just need that one person to show it, you know, to help. But if someone's like, well, I don't have a Joel, Benita. Yeah. What then? Yeah. And I would say, remember that, yeah, Jesus loves the way that you walk. And our society is so, so much about physical and appearances. And yet, you know, I love when I just read in um, Samuel where it says, man looks at the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. And that's, that's what we need to be cultivating. That's what we need to be caring about is where's our heart? Because that's the only thing that will last. Cause I mean, beauty, I, I knew somebody who was absolutely gorgeous and, um, and it was in an accident and, and her superficial beauty was gone. 
And yet the real beauty of her, you know, shone through that. And so just realizing, you know, what is seen, those things are so temporary and that what is unseen is really your true value. And, you know, for people who are single and that are like, I want to meet some amazing guy. I mean, you might certainly, but you might not. And I had to come to terms with that as well with my, you know, online dating. I actually was fairly certain I wouldn't meet anybody, but I think God for the beautiful and the not as physically beautiful. I mean, the person that God has for you isn't going to be dependent on that. It it really is who God has for you. So it's not like you need to feel like, oh, I have a disability or I have these issues. I struggle with massive pain. Nobody's going to want to deal with that burden, which is what I kind of thought. And yet if God has somebody for you, he does. So, Mm -hmm. and if he doesn't, then you could be like Miss America, but it may be that God has chosen for you to be single, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I just felt like people needed to hear that. You you said burden, which you wrote that you would rather be dead than be a burden, mm-hmm. which I 100% believe, you know, like, and I, one of those, thank you so much for being honest in your book and saying what we all think and struggle with. Yeah. So right now, as you have so many things redeemed, you have some precious daughters, you have a husband who adores you and how he brings you your coffee. And I just, I like, think I saw like the whole last few chapters of your book, you know, like there's so much beauty there, right. That you've stuck in with God to see transformed. And yet there's also, yeah, like my body might still degenerate and keep going that way. What hope do you stand on right now? Looking forward. Mm. My hope is that Jesus will never change and he will never leave me. And so if I am, somebody is feeding me and I'm in a wheelchair and I can't do anything for myself, God will never change and he will never leave me. And so I've seen him be faithful through my nightmares. And that that's the beauty and hard thing, but beauty, I think, from my perspective now of being through my worst nightmares. You know, my body failed, my child died, my husband left, and my kids rebelled. You know, those were my nightmares, and they happened, and God was not just good. He was better than I imagined, and I know he will be. Amen. I I could end it right there. I have one final question I like to ask people, which is, this, it seems like a flyby episode. I feel like we could talk for so much longer but what is there anything on your heart that I haven't asked about or something that you want to share? Mm. Oh, those are hard questions. Um, I would, I mean, I feel like we talked about everything. I would just say, um, I don't know why this just came to mind. A friend of mine wrote this for Thanksgiving to me, but it was um, lean in, breathe deep, God's love holds. And so I would just say to people, lean into God. He he will hold you. He will hold you fast no matter what is going on in your life. Colossians, all things hold together in Christ, right? Mm, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that was a yeah. verse that I memorized with my scar. I was like, he's physically holding me together because each scar on my, each stitch in my huge scar was like a little cross, mm. right? And so it's like mm, the cross yeah. holding my body together, but then also he's holding us together on such a deeper level. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Benita, thank you so much for doing this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, books, two books, right? Yes. So first off, 
I know you say you're not an expert or a master at anything, but you do know a lot about suffering. So the first book is The Scars That Have Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Our Suffering. And then this one, your memoir is Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption. Amazing titles. I haven't read your first one, but I have it on my list because your memoir is so incredible. So where can people get those and connect with you? Yeah. Um, so the books you can get on Amazon um, or Barnes and Noble or any, hopefully some of the um, yeah bookstores um, that you can walk into. I love supporting bookstores. And my website is Vanitha.com, which my daughters say is extremely narcissistic. So I'm sorry that is my domain, but it is Vanitha.com. No, I love it because it's unique. And if you can spell your name, then it's simple where you get to go to the website. Yeah. And so, and I write um, not every week, sometimes every week, just about how God meets us in suffering because I'm committed for people to see that your suffering isn't meaningless. God is using it in ways that will one day blow your mind. Amen. Thank you, Benita, for sharing what God's done in your suffering. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me on. This was great. This interview meant a lot to me for a number of reasons, and one of those is that Vanitha is so relatable, and from behind the scenes, I just want to tell you that she is authentic, genuine, one of the most caring, kind, prayer warrior women I have ever met. So if you think that this could relate to someone else, whether they're in physical pain or not, please share this episode, head over to Vanitha's website. I've linked that in the show notes, get her book and pray for her that God would continue growing her influence. We are incredibly grateful and that finishes up our women's health month. So we'll see you here next Monday with a male guest again, starting out June.